Part seventy seven of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part seventy seven The Luddites. The name of this deluded faction was taken from the person by whom they represented that they were led on to commit the irregularities of which they were guilty, General Ludd. It appears that the cotton manufacturers of Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire, Leicestershire, and some parts of Yorkshire, having suffered under a considerable reduction of wages and scarcity of work, which they attributed to the very extensive introduction of machinery, associated in such numbers for the destruction of frames and looms, and the annoyance of those manufacturers who had been most forward in introducing the machines, that those counties became the seat of the most serious tumults. The crimes of which they were generally guilty were those of administering unlawful oaths, riotously assembling, and breaking the frames and looms of the manufacturers of cloth, breaking into houses, and in some instances those persons who had had sufficient hardihood to oppose their proceedings were selected by them as victims to their passions, and were barbarously murdered. The riotous proceedings of the party continued during a considerable period, but at length the active measures which were taken by the government against them effectually put a stop to their depredations. Many of them having been taken into custody, a special commission was issued for their trial, and was opened by Baron Thompson, at the city of York, on Monday the 4th of January, 1813, in a most impressive charge to the grand jury. On Tuesday the 5th, the business of the court commenced with the trial of John Swallow, John Batley, Joseph Fletcher, and John Lamb, for a burglary and felony in the house of Mr. Samuel Moxon, at Whitley Upper. The jury pronounced them all guilty. It would be useless to go into a detail of all the cases tried before the learned judges, all of which partook strongly of the same character, and we shall therefore confine ourselves to the recital of those instances which were marked by the spilling of blood. On the Wednesday George Mellor, of Longroyd Bridge, and William Thorpe and Thomas Smith, of Huddersfield, were indicted for the willful murder of William Horsfall, of Marsden, merchant and manufacturer, at Lockwood, in the West Riding of Yorkshire. From the evidence of Benjamin Walker, an accomplice of the prisoners and others, it appeared that a conspiracy was entered into to attack the mill of Mr. Cartwright, in which Mellor was one of the principals. While they were in conversation upon this subject, on the 28th of April, however, the same prisoner produced a loaded pistol, and said he was going to shoot Mr. Horsfall, and that the other prisoners and Walker must accompany him. They accordingly proceeded together to a plantation near an inn, called the Warren House, at Crossland Moor, near Huddersfield, where it was arranged that they should station themselves in a line by the road, and when Mr. Horsfall came, Mellor was to fire first, and in case of his missing his aim, Smith and Walker were to fire. At a quarter past six o'clock in the evening, Mr. Horsfall called at the Warren House on his way home from Huddersfield Market, and had some rum and water, and after about twenty minutes he proceeded on his way, unconscious of the fate which awaited him. He had entered the road which ran through the plantation, and which was only a quarter of a mile from the Warren House, when the prisoner Mellor fired and shot him. The unfortunate gentleman, on his being wounded, fell on the horse's chine, and a Mr. Parr, hearing the report and seeing him fall, rode up to him in order to assist him. Mr. Horsfall, having quitted his horse, sat down by the roadside, 
and dispatched Mr. Parr for assistance, but he died very soon afterwards. The prisoner attempted to prove an alibi, but the jury withdrew about twenty minutes, and returned a verdict of guilty against them all. They were immediately sentenced to death. On Friday these wretched men were brought to the place of execution behind the castle at York. Every precaution had been taken to render a rescue impracticable. Two troops of cavalry were drawn up near the front of the platform, and the avenues to the castle were guarded by infantry. A few minutes before nine o'clock the prisoners came upon the platform. After the ordinary had read the accustomed forms of prayer, George Miller prayed for about ten minutes, William Thorpe also prayed, but his voice was not so well heard. Smith said but little, but seemed to join in the devotions with great seriousness. The prisoners were then moved to the front of the platform, and after saying a few words, the executioner proceeded to perform his fatal office, and the drop fell. On the 8th, John Baines the elder, John Baines the younger, Zachary Baines of the same family, and the elder near seventy years of age, and the latter scarce sixteen, John Eden, Charles Milnes, William Blakeborough, and George Duckworth, all of Halifax, were tried for administering an unlawful oath to John MacDonald, and all except the boy were found guilty. On the ninth of January, James Haig of Dalton, Jonathan Dean of Huddersfield, John Ogden, James Brooke, Thomas Brooke, John Walker of Longroyd Bridge, and John Hurst of Liversedge, were tried for attacking the mill of Mr. William Cartwright at Rawfolds. Mr. Cartwright, being apprehensive of an attack being made upon his mill, procured the assistance of five soldiers, and retired to rest about twelve o'clock, but soon afterwards heard the barking of a dog. He arose, and while opening the door, heard a breaking of windows, and also a firing in the upper and lower windows, and a violent hammering at the door. He and his men flew to their arms, and a bell placed at the top of the mill for the purpose of alarming the neighbours, being rung by one of his men, the persons inside the mill, discharged their pieces from loopholes. The fire was returned regularly on both sides. The mob called, "'Bang up, lads! In with you! Keep close! Damn that bell! Get to it! Damn em! Kill em all!' The numbers assembled were considerable. The attack continued about twenty minutes, but at length the fire slackened from without, and the cries of the wounded were heard. The men that were wounded were taken care of, but afterwards died. One of the accomplices, W. Hall, stated that he was one of those connected with Mellor and Thorpe, and assembled with many other persons by the desire of Mellor, in a field belonging to Sir George Armitage Baronet, on the night of the 11th of April. They called their numbers, remained there some time, and then marched off to the mill. Mellor commanded the Musket Company, another Pistol Company, and another the Hatchet Company. They were formed in lines of ten each. Two of the men were to go last and drive up the rear. Some had hatchets, some hammers, some sticks, and others had no arms. The jury found James Haig, J. Dean, J. Ogden, T. Brooke, and J. Walker guilty, but acquitted the rest. Several prisoners were on the two following days convicted of robberies, but many others were, through the lenity of the government, admitted to bail. On the Thursday, on the grand jury coming into court and declaring that they had disposed of all the bills of indictment preferred before them, Mr. Park, who had appeared as counsel for the Crown, said that it was not intended to present any more indictments. He, and those learned gentlemen who had assisted him, had examined the various cases which might have formed the subjects of prosecution, but in that discretion 
with which they had been entrusted, they had determined to exercise a lenity which he hoped would produce its proper effect with the prisoners and their associates. The grand jury then retired, and sentence of death was passed upon fifteen prisoners by Mr. Baron Thompson. On Saturday at eleven o'clock, John Hill, Joseph Crowther, Nathaniel Hale, Jonathan Dean, John Ogden, Thomas Brooke, and John Walker were brought out on the scaffold to undergo the last sentence of the law. They appeared to be fully sensible of the awful situation in which they were placed, and having hung till twelve o'clock, they were cut down, in order to make way for those prisoners who were to be executed subsequently on the same day. In about an hour and a half after they had been removed, John Swallow, John Batley, Joseph Fisher, William Hartley, James Haig, James Hay, and Job Hay were also executed. The crowd of persons assembled was immense. Huffy White and Richard Kendall, executed for robbing the Leeds Mail. Huffy White was a more expert and notorious housebreaker, and perpetrated more adroit burglaries and robberies than any other malefactor of his time. His first conviction appears to have taken place in the year 1809, when he was found guilty of a burglary, and sentenced to be transported for life. Preparatory to his being sent abroad, he was conveyed on board the hulks at Woolwich, but disliking the treatment he experienced there, he contrived to make his escape and once more visited the scenes of his former crimes in London. At this time he became acquainted with the notorious Jem McCool, and as a means of replenishing his exchequer he agreed to accompany him to Chester for the purpose of robbing the bank there. White, it appears, lodged in the house of a blacksmith named Scottock in London, who supplied him with the necessary implements, and the two villains, having directed the smith to forward them the keys, etc., to Chester, set off for that place early in 1810, and having made their observations, called at the coach office for the box of implements. Unfortunately for their project, the friction of the coach had broken one corner of the box, through which a skeleton key suspiciously obtruded, and an officer having been made acquainted with the fact, he was concealed when White and McCool came to demand the box, and having secured them both, they were committed to the House of Correction, as rogues and vagabonds. McCall went by the name of Martin, and White assumed that of Evans, but a description of their persons being transmitted to Bow Street, an officer was sent who quickly recognised them both, and White was brought to trial at the next assizes, and received sentence of death, for being at large before the expiration of his period of transportation, but this sentence was afterwards commuted to transportation for life and he was once more sent to his former station in the hulks. McCool remaining in Chester jail, in which he was sentenced to be confined for six months. At the expiration of the term of his imprisonment, McCool returned to London, and agreeing with one French to rob the Glasgow Bank, they wished for the assistance of Huffy White, and actually contrived to liberate him from the hulks, before they set off for Scotland. On their reaching the scene of their intended depredation, they took lodgings in the house of Mrs. Stewart, and although they appeared to be persons engaged in no particular business, they were nevertheless actively employed in maturing their plans for the burglary. In this way, nearly six weeks passed away, the most anxious care being taken that no circumstance should occur which could excite suspicion. The exact position of the banking-house, and of all the apartments in which money was kept, was ascertained and accurately noted down, 
and that no chance of success should be lost, the thieves actually made themselves acquainted with the persons who had charge of the banking-house, through whose innocent instrumentality they procured much of the information they required. Their implements having reached them, however, from London, they found that none of them were calculated for the purpose which they had in view, and White, who had assumed the name of Down, was dispatched to the metropolis with the necessary instructions to procure fit instruments. On his return he was amply provided, and at length on Sunday evening, when the honest bank-keepers were gone to church, the burglary was effected, and twenty thousand pounds in Scotch bank-notes were carried off. The party judged rightly that Glasgow was no place for them to remain in any longer, and they immediately set off in a post-chaise for London, changing a twenty-pound note at every stage. From the able manner in which the robbery had been effected, and from all the doors and cupboards being found locked as they had been left, it was not discovered, nor indeed suspected, until the following day, when pursuit, with a chance of catching the thieves, was of course hopeless. But information being conveyed to London, the fugitives were traced to have proceeded thither, and White was apprehended in the house of his old ally Scottock, with a number of house-breaking implements in his possession. All search for money proved of no avail, however, the notes having been duly lodged in the hands of an experienced banker, and the exertions of the officers to apprehend the other offender were equally futile. In accordance with a system then existing to a very great extent, but now happily put an end to, negotiations were commenced by the thieves with the banking company for the restoration of the notes upon certain terms, one of which was that no prosecution should take place, and Sayer, the officer, being employed, matters were at length satisfactorily adjusted, but upon the notes being restored it was found that instead of the sum stolen, eleven thousand and forty-one pounds only were given up, and the gold agent returned to Scotland, compelled to put up with what he could get. In the meantime, however, White was conveyed back to the hulks, to serve out the remainder of his sentence, but he soon contrived again to escape, but he now confined his depredations to the country where he committed various burglaries, while at large he contrived by skeleton keys, etc., to open the doors of the Kettering Bank, and such was the masterly manner in which he effected his entrance and conducted the business that the bankers, Messrs. Keep and Gotch, remained ignorant of the attempted robbery until an accomplice subsequently detailed the transaction. It was conceived to be impossible for such a thing to take place, without at least exciting suspicion, and the information was treated as untrue, until the number of the page in which the London banking account was kept was told, which it was known could only have been learned by an inspection of the private ledger. It appears, however, that in this instance ignorance was bliss, for, although the thieves had carried off nothing because the state of the exchequer did not present a sufficient temptation, they had fully made up their minds to pay the house a second visit, in the hope of making a more successful haul, but from this they were prevented by the apprehension of White, who was the prime mover of these proceedings, and his execution on a charge of robbing the Leeds mail at Higham Ferriers in Northamptonshire on the 29th of October, 1812. The circumstances of this case are as follows. The guard, having gone to the coach-box on the night in question from his accustomed seat at the back of the mail, the robbers contrived, during his absence, and without exciting his suspicion, to open the lock and carry off the mail-bags. 
information of the robbery having been conveyed to london richard and john limbrick two bow street officers were dispatched in search of the thieves and hearing that white was at bristol they proceeded thither having little doubt that he was one of the parties concerned on their arrival they found that he was living with two fellows named ned burkett and john goodman both well-known thieves and it was determined to watch them in order that a favourable opportunity might be seized to secure their persons several days passed before they were able to attempt the capture of their prey but at length goodman and his wife having been taken into custody upon a charge of robbing the canterbury bank of which they were suspected a favourable opportunity presented itself the officers in consequence went boldly to the house occupied by the thieves and having given a loud knock at the door they were answered by burkett they immediately rushed in but were met with a most violent opposition in the course of which white managed to make his escape over a shed at the back his career however was drawing to a close and information having reached the officers that liverpool was to be favoured by his presence they were soon on the lookout for him in that city early in the month of april eighteen thirteen he was found to have entered liverpool and inquiries being made he was traced to the house of an old woman named mary howes alias taylor in the scotland road there the limbricks in consequence proceeded thither when their entrance was opposed by the old woman but some force being applied the door was opened and they proceeded directly to the cellar there they found white and a man named haywood evidently prepared to make a desperate resistance but the officers being equally resolute after a violent conflict in the course of which a pistol was fired by one of the constables the thieves were secured upon the house being searched a great variety of house-breaking implements were found concealed under a flag in the cellar and mrs howes was also taken into custody at the ensuing summer assizes at northampton white kendall and the woman mary howes were indicted for the robbery of the leeds mail and it was proved that on the evening of which the robbery was effected the two first-named prisoners were seen on the road in a gig near higham ferrers and subsequently on the same night at the house of mrs howes who then lived very near it was also shown that no other gig but that in which the prisoners rode passed through the turnpike on that evening and the prisoners were afterwards seen together and were traced to london where white offered to negotiate some of the bills and notes the produce of the robbery with one richardson who had been before this time convicted of robbing the house of the marchioness of downshire forty witnesses were examined on this trial which lasted fourteen hours and such was the interest produced that the court was crowded to excess the judge having charged the jury they retired and soon afterwards returned finding white and kendall guilty but they acquitted the woman in accordance with the direction of the court it appearing that her offence did not take place in the county in which she was arraigned the night preceding the execution of these convicts white attempted to make his escape and had succeeded so far as to cut off his irons and break through several doors but he was stopped at the outward gate and reconducted to his cell at nine o'clock august thirteenth eighteen thirteen the procession approached the place of execution at northampton kendall appeared deeply impressed with a sense of the awful fate that awaited him but uniformly persisted in declaring his innocence and said that he fell a victim in consequence of his having had the misfortune to be in the company with his fellow-sufferer on the night of the robbery 
He declared on the gallows that he was a murdered man, and appealed to the populace in a speech of some length, in which he endeavoured to convince them of his perfect innocence. White's deportment was such as to exhibit his extreme carelessness of life. Hardihood never forsook him, and he more than once found fault with the manner in which the chaplain performed his duty. From the time of his conviction he disregarded the gallows, and being humanely asked by a clergyman if he could administer any sort of comfort to him, answered, "'Only by getting some other man to be hanged for me.' He declared Kendall innocent a few minutes before they were launched into eternity. End of part 77